This episode. <laughs> Stop that! What are you doing? Coming. We're humbugs. Yeah. This episode, P.T. Barnum's book, The Humbugs of the World. <laughs> Cut it out. Want more humming? This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glass eater. On, folks, what are you waiting for? Admission is free to Ballycast, the podcast of the carnival, sideshow, and variety arts. You're just in time. We're going to have a free show. We're going to bring out the strange people, the weird people. Here they come now. Watch the doorway. You'll see what they do. You'll hear what they talk about. They're all alive on the inside. Get your ticket and come in. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen. Some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Ballycast, episode 158, brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment for showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. This episode, news, a recipe specially for Schlitzy, and much more. I'm your host, the lovely and talented Wayne Kaiser, and this is Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain until the ride comes to a complete stop. Brought to you by Sun Sweet Prune Juice, the fruit juice that gives you something extra. Humbugs? You want humbugs? They're here. Lots of them. Good God, and so can you. Say, babies, get in on what's happening. Here's an item that's always groovy. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to be out. It's going to be in. Be in. Wear it to be in. Wear it to love in. Wear it to turn in. Your Nazi helmet is factory fresh and comes with a choice of personalized decals. Made of the finest organic plastic, this item will never become obsolete. Kids? Get your own helmet club, plan secret meetings, wear your helmets to school, compare your genuine now helmet to dad's old one, guarantee complete protection in all demonstrations. Hey kids, get up tight with your out of sight Nazi helmet today. Good God, and so can you. And speaking of bugs, remember Pinocchio's little pal, Jiminy Cricket? When you I always knew that moralizing little prick had a secret life. 
That's very good advice, huh? And I always follow it because I'm no fool, no siree. I won't live to be 73. I play safe for you and me because I'm no fool. Any fool neglects his bike and thinks he's being smart. He doesn't give it any care and soon it falls apart. Any fool eats lots of food and goes in for a dip. The cramps that follow sink him like an overloaded ship. It wouldn't hurt you to take orders from your conscience if you have one. I may not be a football hero, but I'm a star with the beautiful girl. You never see me in the thick of a fight, cause I do my scoring mostly at night. I never tackle any dummies I've played the best from near and far No, I ain't, no, I'm not a football hero But I'm a bear in a lady's boudoir They play football on the gridiron Where the ground is rough and hard I do my playing on a divan The ladies all say I'm a triple threat man I never have to call for time out, for I'm always up to par. Oh, I ain't, no, I'm not a football hero, but I'm a bear in a lady's boudoir. I never fought for Alma Mater, because she never fought for me. The boys win a letter for not playing rough. I should get an alphabet for doing my stuff. I'm pretty good at center rushing. That's the place I really star. Oh, I may not be, I'm not a football hero. But I'm a dog in a lady's boudoir. That'll take care of the two-faced little bastard. Humbugs. My listeners are thoroughly familiar with them. You'll ever see any of Number one is... The mermaid girl, the only pigeon mermaid ever discovered in the world. She's here tonight, the top part of her body from waist up, a normal woman, from the waist down, a body like a tail like a fish. She lives in a tank of water, and you'll see her in the water in here tonight. Number two, from Nuremberg, Germany, a woman, Olga Hess, who just five months ago was a normal woman who kept her house and raised her children. But then, that woman was involved in a terrible automobile accident right in front of a hospital. She plunged through the windshield and it cut off her head. They quickly got her into the hospital, into the operating room. The surgeons worked furiously, but they were unable to save her head, and it perished. But they were able, through modern medical experience, to be able to keep her body alive. And that woman, without a head, is still alive today in this tent, under the care of Dr. Blodgett. And when you see her, when you touch her, you will know that this is a woman alive without a head. 
But the strangest of them all is a 22-year-old girl from Brooklyn, New York, Miss Wanda Wamas, who has a normal head and a beautiful face of a 22-year-old woman. But her body is not normal. I wouldn't even think it may not be human because she has a body like the body of a big python snake. She is exhibited in here in a tree with her body wrapped around a tree limb. And she is alive and she'll talk to you. You can ask her questions and she will answer your questions for you. Now my friends, this is a big show. One small part of it and that's the price of admission. All day long, we've been charging $5. We've had probably 20,000 people through here today. Tonight, for our last show, which we're ready to start now, we're going to forget about the $5 ticket. We're going to invite everyone to go in on the child's price admission, except for the little children five and under, and they're invited to go in free if they're with their parents. Ladies and gentlemen, watch the man drive the ice pick right into the center of his head, all the way in. Remember, where there's no brain, there's no pain. That's why he can do it. Thank you, John. Ladies and gentlemen, watch the little man. Booba eats the fire. Oh, it's so good. Like ice cream, only different. And right down the hatch. Now, it's showtime. We invite everyone to step over here. And remember, please, you only pay one admission one time. And you see all of them. There are no extra charges on the inside. One ticket sees them all. And right now, they're on the stage. In fact, this is a very good time to go in and see the headless woman because she is awake right now. So come right in and pay it a visit. Let's go see them now. Showtime! Where the wonders are. Where the strange people entertain. Last show of the night, your last chance to see it. No more $5 tickets. We go in now only $3. The show is starting in there right now. Let me look over the curtain and see what's going on. Oh, there is the act where you see a man turn into a woman and turn back into a man in just 30 seconds. It's showtime. Come in now. They're alive on the inside. That's our guarantee. They are all human. They are all alive. It's showtime. Come right in. Step right up. See the sun is showing the town for only 50 cents. Step right up. Hurry, hurry. Before the show begins. My friends. Stand in line. Get your tickets. I'll to see what life has done to those like you and me see the man with the broken heart you'll see that he is sad he hurts so bad so bad so 
shall chassis No doubt about it, satisfaction's guarantee Barnum never actually said there's a sucker born every minute, but he was so often blamed for deception that in 1865 he published his long and detailed explanation of foolishness, foo-for-raw, and fiddle-faddle, the humbugs of the world, an account of humbugs, delusions, impositions, quackeries, deceits, and deceivers generally in all ages. Now, that's a very long title. I might suggest one more word, but a gentleman of the 19th century couldn't say bullshit. Barnum's list is practically prescient, as though he even foresaw QAnon. There's so much to unwrap here that this reading will have to be just the first of several segments. This is an edited and condensed version of Part 1, of the book's ten parts, this one headed Personal Reminiscences. A little reflection will show that humbug is an astonishingly widespread phenomenon, in fact, almost universal. 
There is no sort of object which men seek to attain, secular, moral, or religious, in which humbug is not very often an instrumentality. False religions are perhaps the most monstrous, complicated, and thoroughgoing specimens of humbug that can be found. Even within the pale of Christianity, how unbroken has been the succession of impostors, hypocrites, and pretenders, male and female, of every possible age, sex, doctrine, and discipline. Do I need to explain to my own beloved countrymen that there is humbug in politics? No political campaign is without it. Are no exaggerations of our candidates' merits to be allowed, no depreciations of the other candidate? Shall we no longer prove that the success of the party opposed to us will overwhelm the land in ruin? In what business is there not humbug? There's cheating in all trades but ours, is the prompt reply from the bootmaker with his brown paper soles, the grocer with his flowery sugar and chicoried coffee, the butcher with his mysterious sausages, every one warning you against the deceits of the rest. You'll get experience enough, and you'll pay well for it too, and towards the time when you shall no longer need earthly goods, you'll begin to know how to buy. I can only allude to whole sciences, falsely so called, which are unmingled humbugs from beginning to end. Such was alchemy, such was and still is astrology, and above all, fortune-telling. The greatest humbug of all is the man who believes that everything and everybody are humbugs. We sometimes meet a person who professes that there is no virtue, that every man has his price and every woman hers, that any statement from anybody is just as likely to be false as true, and that the only way to decide which is to consider whether truth or a lie was likely to have paid best in that particular case. Honor, he thinks, is a sham. Honesty, he considers a plausible word to flourish in the eyes of the greener portion of our race, as you would hold out a cabbage leaf to coax a donkey. If you can imagine a hog's mind in a man's body, greedy, selfish, cruel, cunning, sly, coarse, yet stupid, short-sighted, unreasoning, unable to comprehend anything except what concerns the flesh, you have your man. He thinks himself philosophic and practical, a man of the world. He thinks to show knowledge and wisdom, penetration, deep acquaintance with men and things. Instead of showing that others are rotten inside, he's proved that he is. He virtually slanders his father and dishonors his mother and defiles the sanctities of home and the glory of patriotism and the merchant's honor and the martyr's grave and the saint's crown. I do not pronounce him a humbug. He is a fool. I find myself somewhat puzzled in regard to the true definition of the word humbug. Webster says that humbug as a noun is an imposition under fair pretenses, and as a verb it is to deceive, to impose on. 
this is not the only nor even the generally accepted definition of that term. We will suppose, for instance, that a man with fair pretenses applies to a wholesale merchant for credit on a large bill of goods. His fair pretenses imply an assertion that he is a moral and religious man, a member of the church, a man of wealth, etc. Turns out he's not worth a dollar, but is a base lying wretch, an imposter, and a cheat. He's arrested and imprisoned for obtaining property under false pretenses. He's punished for his villainy. The public do not call him a humbug. They very properly term him a swindler. A man bearing the appearances of a gentleman in dress and manners purchases property from you and with fair pretenses obtains your confidence. You find, when he is left, that he has paid you with counterfeit banknotes or a forged draft. This man is justly called a forger or counterfeiter, and if arrested, he's punished as such, but nobody thinks of calling him a humbug. Two physicians reside in one of our fashionable avenues. They were both educated in the best medical college. Each has passed an examination, received his diploma, and been dubbed an M.D. They are equally skilled in the healing art. One rides quietly about the city in his little carriage, visiting his patients without noise or clamor. The other sallies out in his coach and four, preceded by a band of music, and his carriage and horses are covered with handbills and placards announcing his wonderful cures. This man is properly called a quack and a humbug. Why? Not because he cheats or imposes upon the public, for he does not, but because, as generally understood, humbug consists in putting on glittering appearances by which to suddenly arrest public attention and attract the public eye and ear. A blacking maker of London dispatched his agent to Egypt to write on the pyramids of Giza in huge letters, Buy Warren's Blacking. He was not cheating travelers upon the Nile. His blacking was really a superior article, and well worth the price charged for it. But he was humbugging the public by this queer way of arresting attention. It turned out, just as he anticipated, that travelers in that part of Egypt were indignant at this desecration, and they denounced the man who had thus disfigured these ancient pyramids by writing on them. The Times published these letters and backed them up by several editorials, in which the blacking maker was stigmatized as a man who had no respect for the ancient patriarchs, and it was hinted that he would probably not hesitate to sell his blacking on the sarcophagus of Vero, if only he could make money on it. Warren was denounced as a humbug, and very soon, in this manner, the columns of every newspaper in Great Britain were teeming with this advice. Try Warren's blacking. The curiosity of the public was thus aroused, and they did try it, and finding it a superior article, they continued to purchase it and recommend it to their friends, and Warren made a fortune by it. 
He always attributed his success to his having humbugged the public by this unique method of advertising his blacking in Egypt. But Warren did not cheat his customers, nor practice an imposition under fair pretenses. He was a humbug, but he was an honest, upright man, and no one called him an imposter or a cheat. By thus illustrating what I believe the public will concede to be, the sense in which the word humbug is generally used and understood at the present time, I expect to treat of various fallacies, delusions, and deceptions in ancient and modern times, which, according to Webster's definition, may be called humbugs. Speaking of blacking makers, one of the first sensationalists in advertising was Mr. Leonard Gosling, known as Monsieur Gosling, the great French blacking maker. At every street corner, your eyes rested upon Gosling's blacking. From every show window, gilded placards discoursed eloquently of the merits of Gosling's blacking. The newspapers teemed with poems written in its praise, and showers of pictorial handbills, illustrated almanacs, and tinseled souvenirs, all lauding the virtues of Gosling's blacking, smothered you at every point. That celebrated originator of delineations, Thomas Jim Crow Rice, made his first appearance at Hamblin's Bowery Theater at about this time. In one of his scenes, Rice introduced a Negro boot-blacking establishment. Gosling was too wide awake to let such an opportunity pass unimproved, and Rice was paid for singing an original Gosling ditty, while a score of placards bearing the inscription, Use Gosling's Blacking, were suspended at different points in this boot-polishing hall scene. Everybody tried Gosling's blacking, and as it was a really good article, his sales in city and country soon became immense. Gosling made a fortune in seven years and retired. But as with thousands before him, it was easy come, easy go. He engaged in a lead mining speculation, and his fortune was lost as rapidly as it was made. One of the most difficult things in life is for men to bear discreetly sudden prosperity. Unless considerable time and labor are devoted to earning money, it's not appreciated by its possessor, and having no practical knowledge of the value of money, he generally gets rid of it with the same ease that marked its accumulation. I cannot permit this chapter to close without recording a protest in principle against that method of advertising of which Warren's on the pyramid is one instance. Not that it is a crime or even an immorality in the usual sense of the words, but it is a violent offense against good taste and a selfish and inexcusable destruction of other people's enjoyments. Too many transactions of the sort have been perpetrated in our own country. The principle on which the thing is done is to seek out the most attractive spot possible and there, in the most staring and brazen manner, to paint up advertisements in such a lasting way as to destroy the beauty of a scene both thoroughly and permanently. 
It is worth noting that New York's chief haunt, Central Park, has thus far remained unviolated by the dirty hands of these vulgar advertisers. I have no doubt whatever that the commissioners have been approached often by parties desiring the privilege of advertising within its limits. Among the advertising fraternity, it would be thought a gigantic opportunity to be able to flaunt the name of some bug poison, fly killer, bowel rectifier, or disguised rum along the walls of the reservoir, upon the delicate stonework of the terrace, or the graceful lines of the Bow Bridge, to nail up a tin sign on every other tree, to stick one up right in front of every seat, to keep a gang of young wretches thrusting pamphlet or handbill into every person's palm that enters the gate, to paint a vulgar sign across every gray rock, to cut quack words and ditch work in the smooth green turf of the mall. I have no doubt that it is the peremptory decision and clear good taste of the commissioners alone which have kept this last retreat of nature within our crowded city from being long ago plastered and daubed with placards, handbills, signboards, and paint from side to side and from end to end over turf, tree, rock, wall, bridge, archway, building, and all. James C. Adams, Grizzly Adams as he was generally termed, from the fact of his having captured so many grizzly bears and encountered such fearful perils by his unexampled daring, was an extraordinary character. For many years a hunter and trapper, he acquired a recklessness which rendered him truly one of the most striking men of the age. He was emphatically what the English call a man of Pluck. In 1860, he arrived in New York with his famous collection of California animals, captured by himself, consisting of twenty or thirty immense grizzly bears, at the head of which stood Old Samson, now in the American Museum. Wolves, California lions, tigers, buffalo, elk, etc., and Old Neptune, the great sea lion from the Pacific. Adams had trained all these monsters so that with him they were docile as kittens, while many of the most ferocious among them would attack a stranger without hesitation. In fact, the training of these animals was no fool's play, as old Adams learned to his cost, for the terrific blows which he received from time to time while teaching them docility finally cost him his life. When Adams and his other wild beasts, for he was nearly as wild as any of them, arrived in New York, he called immediately at the museum. He was dressed in his hunter's suit of buckskin, trimmed with the skins and bordered with the hanging tails of small Rocky Mountain animals. His cap, the skin of a wolf's head and shoulders, from which depended several tails as natural as life, and under which appeared his stiff, bushy gray hair and his long, white, grizzly beard. Old Adams was quite as much of a show as his bears. During our conversation, Adams took off his cap and showed me the top of his head. 
His skull was literally broken in. It had, on various occasions, been struck by the fearful paws of his grisly students, and the last blow from the bear called General Fremont had laid open his brain, so that its workings were plainly visible. I remarked that I thought that was a dangerous wound and might possibly prove fatal. Yes, replied Adams, that will fix me out. It had nearly healed, but old Fremont opened it for me for the third or fourth time before I left California, and he did his business so thoroughly I'm a used-up man. However, I reckon I may live six months or a year yet. His immediate object in calling upon me was this. I had purchased one half-interest in his California menagerie from a man who had come by way of the Isthmus from California, and who claimed to own an equal interest with Adams in the show. Adams declared that the man had only advanced him some money, and did not possess the right to sell half of the concern. However, the man held a bill of sale for one half of the California menagerie, and Adams finally consented to accept me as an equal partner in the speculation, saying that he guessed I could do the managing part and he would show up the animals. I obtained a canvas tent, and Adams there opened his novel California menagerie. On the morning of opening, a band of music preceded a procession of animal cages down Broadway and up the Bowery. Old Adams, dressed in his hunting costume, heading the line, with a platform wagon on which were placed three immense grizzly bears, two of which he held by chains, while he was mounted on the back of the largest grizzly which stood in the center, and was not secured in any manner whatever. There was the bear known as General Fremont, and so docile had he become that Adam said he had used him as a pack bear to carry his cooking and hunting apparatus through the mountains for six months, and had ridden him hundreds of miles. But apparently docile as were many of these animals, there was not one among them that would not occasionally give even Adams a sly blow or a sly bite when a good chance offered. Hence, old Adams was but a wreck of his former self, and expressed pretty nearly the truth when he said, Mr. Barnum, I'm not the man I was five years ago. Then I felt able to stand the hug of any grizzly living, and was always glad to encounter, single-handed, any sort of animal that dared present himself. But I've been beaten to a jelly torn almost limb from limb and nearly chawed up and spit out by these treacherous grizzly bears. However, I'm good for a few months yet, and by that time, I hope we shall gain enough to make my old woman comfortable, for I've been absent from her for some years. His wife came from Massachusetts to New York and nursed him, Dr. Johns dressed his wounds every day, and not only told Adams he could never recover, but assured his friends that probably a very few weeks would lay him in his grave. But Adams was as firm, as adamant, and as resolute as a lion. Among the thousands who saw him dressed in his grotesque hunter's suit and witnessed the apparent vigor with which he performed the savage monsters, probably not one suspected that this rough, 
fierce-looking, powerful demi-savage as he appeared to be, was suffering intense pain from his broken skull and fevered system, and that nothing kept him from stretching himself on his deathbed but the most indomitable and extraordinary will of his. After the exhibition had been open six weeks, the doctor insisted that Adams should sell out his share in the animals and settle up all his worldly affairs, for he assured him that he was growing weaker every day and his earthly existence must soon terminate. I shall live a good deal longer than you doctors think for, replied Adams doggedly, and then, seeming after all to realize the doctor's assertion, he turned to me and said, Well, Mr. B., you must buy me out. He named his price for his half of the show, and I accepted his offer. We had arranged to exhibit the bears in Connecticut and Massachusetts during the summer in connection with the circus, and Adams insisted that I should hire him to travel for the summer and exhibit the bears in their curious performances. He offered to go for $60 per week and traveling expenses of himself and wife. What will you give me extra if I travel and exhibit the bears every day for ten weeks? $500, I replied with a laugh. Done, exclaimed Adams. I will do it, so draw up an agreement to that effect at once. But mind you, Draw it payable to my wife, for I may be too weak to attend to business after the ten weeks are up, and if I perform my part of the contract, I want her to get the five hundred dollars without any trouble. I drew up a contract to pay him sixty dollars per week for his services, and if he continued to exhibit the bears for ten consecutive weeks, I was then to hand him or his wife five hundred dollars extra. "'You've lost your five hundred dollars,' exclaimed Adams on taking the contract, "'for I am bound to live and earn it. "'Call me a fool if I don't earn the five hundred. "'The show started off in a few days, "'and at the end of a fortnight I met it at Hartford, Connecticut. "'I saw by his pale face and other indications "'that he was rapidly failing. "'In three weeks more, I met him again at New Bedford, Massachusetts. It seemed to me then that he could not live a week, for his eyes were glassy and his hands trembled, but his pluck was as great as ever. The hot weather's pretty bad for me, he said, but my ten weeks are half expired and I am good for your five hundred dollars and probably a month or two longer. I offered to pay him half of the five hundred if he would give up and go home, but he declined making any compromise whatever. I met him the ninth week in Boston, and he had failed considerably since I last saw him, but he still continued to exhibit the bears and chuckled over his almost certain triumph. I laughed in return and sincerely congratulated him on his nerve and probable success. I remained with him until the tenth week was finished and handed him his five hundred dollars. He took it with a leer of satisfaction and remarked that he was sorry I was a teetotaler for he would like to stand treat. 
Just before the menagerie left New York, I had paid $150 for a new hunting suit made of beaver skins, similar to the one which Adams had worn. This I intended for Herr Dreisbach, the animal tamer, who was engaged by me to take the place of Adams whenever he should be compelled to give up. Adams, on starting from New York, asked me to loan this new dress to him to perform in once in a while in a fair day when we had a large audience, for his own costume was considerably soiled. I did so, and now when I handed him $500, he remarked, Mr. B., I suppose you're going to give me this new hunting dress. Oh, no, I replied. I got that for your successor, who will exhibit the bears tomorrow. Besides, you have no possible use for it. Now don't be mean, but lend me the dress if you won't give it to me, for I want to wear it home to my native village. I could not refuse the poor old man anything, and I therefore replied, Well, Adams, I will lend you the dress, but you will send it back to me. Yes, when I have done with it, he replied, with an evident chuckle of triumph. I thought to myself, he'll soon be done with it, and replied, That's all right. A new idea evidently seized him, for with a brightening look of satisfaction, he said, Now, Barnum, you've made a good thing out of the California menagerie, and so have I, but you'll make a heap more. So if you won't give me this new hunter's dress, just draw a little writing and sign it, saying that I may wear it until I am done with it. I knew that in a few days, at longest, he would be done with this world altogether, and to gratify him, I cheerfully drew and signed the paper. Come on, old Yankee. I've got you this time, see if I hain't, exclaimed Adams with a broad grin as he took the paper. We parted, and we went to Neponset, a small town near Boston where his wife and daughter lived. He took it once to his bed and never rose from it again. The fifth day after arriving home, the physician told him he could not live until the next morning. He received the announcement in perfect calmness and with the most apparent indifference. Then, turning to his wife with a smile, he requested to have him buried in the new hunting suit. Barnum agreed to let me have it until I have done with it, and I was determined to fix his flint this time. He shall never see that dress again. In an hour his spirit had taken its flight and it was said by those present that his face lighted up into a smile as the last breath escaped him, and that smile he carried into his grave. Almost his last words were, Won't Barnum open his eyes when he finds I have humbugged him by being buried in his new hunting dress. That dress was, indeed, the shroud in which he was entombed, and that was the last on earth of old Grizzly Adams. In the year 1842, a new style of advertising appeared in the newspapers and in handbills, which arrested public attention at once on account of its novelty. The thing advertised was an article called Pisa's Whorehound Candy a very good specific for coughs and colds. 
It was put up in 25-cent packages and was eventually sold wholesale and retail in enormous quantities. Mr. Pease's plan was to seize upon the most prominent topic of interest and general conversation and discourse eloquently upon that topic in 50 to 100 lines of a newspaper column then glide off gradually into a panegyric of Pisa's whorehound candy. The consequence was every reader was misled by the caption and commencement of his article, and thousands of persons had Pisa's whorehound candy in their mouths long before they had seen it. In fact, it was next to impossible to take up a newspaper and attempt to read the legitimate news of the day without stumbling upon a package of Pisa's whorehound candy. The reader would often feel vexed to find that, after reading a quarter of a column of interesting news upon the subject uppermost in his mind, he was trapped into the perusal of one of Pisa's whorehound candy advertisements. The result of all this would generally be a trial of the candy on the first symptoms of a cough or influenza. In the same year that Pisa's whorehound candy appeared upon the commercial and newspaper horizon, the Governor Door Rebellion occurred. Citizens of Rhode Island took up arms against each other, and it was feared by some that a bloody civil war would ensue. At about this time, a municipal election was to come off in the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The two political parties were pretty equally divided there, and this was regarded as an unusually important election. At the head of the rabble, upon which one of the parties depended for many votes, was a drunken and profane fellow whom we'll call Tom Simmons. Tom was great, at electioneering and stump-spouting in barrooms and rum caucuses, and his party always looked to him at each election to stir up the subterraneans with a long pole and a whiskey jug at the end of it. Now, Tom, said the head wire-puller, this is going to be a close election, and we want you to spare neither talent nor liquor in arousing up and bringing to the polls every voter within your influence. Well, Squire, said Tom carelessly, I've concluded I won't bother myself with this election. It don't pay. Why, Tom, are you not a true friend to your party? Haven't you always been on hand at the primary meetings, knocked down interlopers, and squelched every man who talked about conscience or who refused to support regular nominations and vote the entire clean ticket straight through? And as for pay, haven't you always been supplied with money enough to treat all doubtful voters and, in fact, to float them up to the polls on an ocean of whiskey? Tom, I'm almost petrified with astonishment at witnessing your present indifference to the alarming crisis in which our country and our party are involved and which nothing on earth can arrest except our success at the coming election. Oh, tell it to the Marines, said Tom. We never yet had an election that there wasn't a crisis 
and yet whichever party gained, we somehow managed to live through it, crisis or no crisis. In fact, my curiosity has got a little excited, and I would like to see this crisis that is such a bugaboo at every election. So trot out your crisis. Let us see how it looks. Besides talking of pay, I acknowledge the whiskey, and that is all. While I and my companions lifted you and your companions into fat offices that enabled you to roll in your carriages and live on the fat of the land, we got nothing, or at least next to nothing. All we got was, well, we got drunk. Now, Squire, I will go for the other party this election if you don't give me an office. Why, Tom, what office do you want? I want to be alderman, replied Tom, and I can control votes enough to turn the election either way. And if our party don't gratefully remember my past services and give me my reward, t'other party will be glad to run me on their ticket, and over I go. So they therefore consented to put Tom's name on the municipal ticket, and the worst part of the story is he was elected. In a very short time, Tom was duly installed into the aldermanic chair, and opening his office on a prominent corner, he was soon doing a thriving business in sitting as a judge in cases of book debt and promissory notes which were brought before him for various small sums ranging from two to five, six, eight, and ten dollars. He would frequently dispose of thirty or forty of these cases in a day, and as imprisonment for debt was permitted at that time, the poor defendants would shin around and make any sacrifice almost rather than go to jail. The enormous court costs went into the capacious pocket of the alderman, and this dignitary, as a natural sequence, waxed fat and saucy. As the alderman grew rich, he became overbearing, headstrong, and dictatorial. He began to fancy that he monopolized the concentrated wisdom of his party, and that his word should be law. But after Tom had disgraced his office for two years, a state election took place, and the other party were successful. Among the first laws which they passed after the convening of the legislature was one declaring that from that date imprisonment for debt should not be permitted in the state of Pennsylvania for any sum less than ten dollars. This enactment, of course, knocked away the chief prop which sustained the alderman, and when the news of its passage reached Philadelphia, Tom was the most indignant man that had been seen there for some years. Standing in front of his office the next morning, surrounded by several of his political chums, Tom exclaimed, Do you see what them infernal Tories have done down there at Harrisburg? They've passed an outrageous, oppressive, barbarous, and unconstitutional law. A pretty idea indeed, if a man can't put a debtor in jail for a less sum than ten dollars— how am I going to support my family, I should like to know, if this law is allowed to stand? I tell you, gentlemen, this law is unconstitutional, and you'll see blood running in our streets if them Tory scoundrels try to carry it out. Oh, you may laugh, gentlemen, you may laugh, but you'll see it. 
Our party will never disgrace itself permitting the Tories to rob them of their right by passing unconstitutional laws, and I say the sooner we come to blood the better. At this moment a gentleman stepped up and addressing the alderman said, Alderman, I want to bring a case of book debt before you this morning. How much is your claim? asked Tom. Four dollars, replied the rum seller, for such he proved to be, and his debt was for drinks chalked up against one of his customers. You can't have your four dollars, sir, replied the excited alderman. You're robbed of your four dollars, sir. Them legislative Tories at Harrisburg, sir, have cheated you out of your four dollars, sir. I undertake to say, sir, that 50,000 honest men in Philadelphia have been robbed of their four dollars by these bloody Tories and their cursed law. Ah, gentlemen, you'll see blood running in our streets before you're a month older. Oh, you may laugh, but you'll see it. See if you don't. A newsboy was just passing by. Here, boy, give me the morning ledger, said the alderman. Let us see what them blasted cowboys are doing down at Harrisburg now. Ah, what is this? Blood, blood, blood. The military are called out. Father is a raid against father and son against son. Blood is already running in our streets. Now laugh, will you, gentlemen? Blood is running in the streets of Providence. Blood will be running in the streets of Philadelphia before you're a fortnight older. Let us see the rest of this tragic scene. Is there any remedy for this dreadful state of things? Of course not, except to hang every rascal of them for trampling on our glorious Constitution. Is there any remedy for this dreadful state of things? Yes, there is. Oh, there is, is there? What is it? Let me read. Buy two packages of Pease's Whorehound Candy. Blast the infernal ledger, exclaimed the now doubly incensed and indignant alderman, throwing the paper upon the pavement with the most ineffable disgust, amid the shouts and hurrahs of a score of men who by this time had gathered around the excited alderman Tom Simmons. As I before remarked, the candy was a very good article for the purposes from which it is made. The humbug in this transaction of course, consisted solely in the manner of advertising. There was no humbug or deception about the article manufactured. Advertising is to a genuine article what manure is to land. It largely increases the product. Thousands of persons may be reading your advertisement while you're eating or sleeping or attending to your business. Hence, public attention is attracted. New customers come to you, and if you tender them a satisfactory equivalent for their money, they continue to patronize you and recommend you to their friends. And there, children, we must close the storybook for the night. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get back to Coney Island. Rub-a-dub-dub, rub-a-dub-dub, rubbin' on her washboard. Rub-a-dub-dub, rub-a-dub-dub, my Coney Island gal. On her Coney Island washboard she would play. 
you could hear her on the boardwalk every day. Soap suds all around, the bubbles on the ground, a rabbit dubbed up in her little tin tub. Oh, what a wonderful sound. Thimbles on her fingers made the noise. She played it every Monday for the boys. She could rag a tune right through the knees of your brand new pair of DVDs, my Coney Island washboard gal. On a Coney Island washboard she would play. You could hear her on the boardwalk every day. Soap suds all around and bubbles on the ground. I promised you the recipe for the official Schlitzy cocktail, designed by beverage director Matthew Linsmeyer of the New York restaurant County, but I'm not quite sure why it was created. Schlitzy himself was kept away from alcohol after he got drunk once while Ward Hall wasn't looking. I don't drink, but for those of you who do, the Schlitzy is a very good blend to try. The base liquor can be tequila or whiskey or rye or scotch, whichever you prefer. It's a little tart and sweet, and it gets earthy and spicy notes from hot pepper-infused Amontillado sherry. To make that, you slice serrano or jalapeno chilies in half and add them to a bottle of Amontillado sherry. Or just add the peppers to a jar and pour the sherry over them, then let the mixture rest in the alcohol for two days, testing it at intervals until you achieve the level of flavor you would like. Recipe. One ounce tequila, whiskey, or rye, or scotch. Three-quarter ounces of lemon juice. Three-quarter ounces of grenadine. One ounce Amontillado sherry infused with chilies. Shake all ingredients and strain. Serve it in an old-style wide champagne coupe glass. Or, as Schlitzie would have said, Well, it turns, I was always white. 
I want you all man have with this in my And just one tip. Don't go into the basement with a guy who says he has a whole cask of Amontillado. The nice part of it is, there's one waiting for you now at the refreshment stand. Want to have even more fun? Learn stuff? Subscribe to Ballycast. You're not in school anymore. There's no homework. There are links on the webpage at Ballycast.com. Or subscribe on iTunes. And all previous episodes are available as well. See you next episode. You know I've said something you like, something you hate, something you agree with, something that offends you. What are you waiting for? Drop a comment on the episode webpage at ballycast.com. Love letters straight from your From the archives of old-time showman Aaron Brill comes four escapes for mystery, magic, and sideshows. A plan for four major escape illusions that are easy to build, pack small, and play big. The barrel and broom illusion is an update of the famous Indian basket trick, with a dozen or more broom handles piercing a barrel in which your assistant is locked. The cross illusion has your assistant escaping from being securely tied to a cross-shaped torture rack. The packing box escape is a one-person variation on the classic metamorphosis illusion. And the vertical prism is another box in which your assistant escapes from being locked by heavy stocks by neck, ankles, and waist inside a vertical coffin. All are easy to build and easy to play. Just add showmanship. Only $4 for a PDF file. Ballycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please exit to your left. That'll take care of the two-faced little bastard.